Section 22 of Life of Sir Walter Raleigh by Louise Creighton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 13, Raleigh in the Tower, Part 1. Sir Walter Raleigh expressed his gratitude to James I for saving his life in two letters, which seem to us unworthy of their writer on account of the high-flown and exaggerated language in which they are written. But we must remember that this was the fashion of the day, and that what appears to us absurd and almost revolting was then looked upon as quite natural. To Cecil also Raleigh expressed his gratitude and added entreaties that he would go on exerting himself in his favor. Good my lord, he writes, remember your poor ancient and true friend, that I perish not here, where health wears away, and whose short times run fast on in misery only. Those which plotted to surprise and assail the person of the king, those that are papists, are at liberty. Do not forget me nor doubt me. During the first year of his imprisonment he seems to have still cherished the hope that he might be allowed to leave the tower, if not to enjoy complete liberty. He asked Cecil if he might not be allowed to live at Sherborne, adding, or if I cannot be allowed so much, I shall be contented to live in Holland, where I shall perchance get some employment in the Indies. He was willing even to be put under the care of some bishop or nobleman, as was then sometimes done with state prisoners. He was in bad health, and was anxious to go to Bath to drink the waters. God doth know, he writes, that if I cannot go to Bath this fall I am undone for my health, and shall be dead or disabled for ever. But all his hopes were to be disappointed. Cecil had done all he meant to do for him. His policy seems to have been to keep out of the way all such men as he feared might prove dangerous rivals. He bore Raleigh no malice, but he was afraid of his genius, and very likely honestly thought that he might be dangerous to the state. Cecil wished to keep all the chief power of the state in his own hands, and he succeeded in so doing. The king himself submitted to his guidance and trusted everything to him. Cecil was afraid of all violent measures, and profoundly believed that his own policy was the only true policy. He was afraid of Bacon in the same way that he was afraid of Raleigh, for he did not believe in the schemes of reform which Bacon advocated, and so did his utmost to prevent Bacon from exercising too much influence at court. If we look at Cecil in this way, we shall easily understand his conduct to Raleigh, and shall not need to suspect him of base motives. By degrees it became clear to Raleigh that he could hope for no more mercy from the king and Cecil. Once, in March 1604, he was removed from the tower for a short period, but only to be taken to the fleet. This was because King James wished to celebrate Easter by coming with all his court to a grand bear-baiting at the tower. To commemorate his visit he wished to pardon all the prisoners then in the tower, but in order that Raleigh, Cobham, and Gray might not be included in the general pardon, he had ordered them to be removed to the fleet during his visit. Raleigh did not waste the time of his imprisonment in vain regrets, and as he was no longer able to take part in the active work of life, he devoted his energies to study. A great deal of liberty was allowed in most cases to the state prisoners in the tower. 
they had their own servants to attend upon them, visitors might come and see them, and they were allowed to take exercise within the enclosure of the tower. The mass of buildings, known as the tower, covers twelve acres of land. In the center, in the inner ward, stands the white tower, the oldest part of the building, and adjoining it were the royal apartments with the royal garden. Here at times the English sovereigns had lived, undisturbed by the neighborhood of their prisoners. Around the White Tower is a circuit of walls with towers, and in these the state prisoners were lodged. Outside of them comes an open space, and then the outer circuit of walls. The tower in which Raleigh was lodged was called the Bloody Tower. The origin of the name is not known, though tradition ascribes it to the fact that in it the boy king Edward V and his brother were murdered. From this tower on one side Raleigh looked over the river and could watch the boats and shipping as they passed by, and gaze out on the wide expanse of country beyond. Behind he had access into a garden called the Lieutenant's Garden, and there was also a pleasant walk along the top of a wall which he used frequently to pace, and which still is called Raleigh's Walk. During some part of Raleigh's imprisonment his wife and his son Walter were allowed to be with him. At other times Lady Raleigh lived in a house on Tower Hill, which she had hired so as to be near her husband, and here probably in the spring of 1605 she gave birth to a second son who was named Carew. The tower was not a healthy spot, and the plague which had been ravaging London lingered long within its walls. Raleigh's own health suffered severely, and he wrote to Cecil in 1604, begging that he would remember his miserable estate, daily in danger of death by the palsy, nightly of suffocation by wasted and obstructed lungs, and now the plague, being come at the next door unto me, only the narrow passage of the way between us, my poor child, having leaned this fourteen days next to a woman with a running plague sore, and but a paper wall between them, and whose child is also this Thursday dead of the plague. In spite of the plague, Raleigh had to stay on in his unhealthy prison. It was fortunate for him that he had the garden in which to take exercise. Here he built a small laboratory and devoted himself to chemical studies. The use of this garden was granted him by Sir George Harvey, then lieutenant of the tower, who treated his prisoner with great kindness. Harvey frequently dined with him, and allowed his friends easy access to him. But in 1605, Harvey was succeeded by Sir William Wadd, who had no such friendly feelings toward Raleigh. He objected to the notice which Raleigh attracted, for he could be seen by passers-by in the garden, and wrote to Cecil, who was now Earl of Salisbury, Sir Walter Raleigh hath converted a little hen-house in the garden into a still, where he doth spend his time all the day in his distillations. I desire not to remove him, though I want by that means the garden, if a brick wall were built, it would be more safe and convenient. Wad seemed anxious to make the prisoners feel their position, and in 1607 brought out a new code of ordinances for the government of the tower, which, though they made no important differences, imposed all kinds of small and vexatious restrictions on the liberty of the prisoners. Raleigh grew famous as a chemist. The Queen Anne of Denmark believed that she owed her recovery from a dangerous illness to a bottle of cordial sent her by him. The Countess of Beaumont, wife of the French ambassador, coming to the tower one day to see the lions which were kept there, 
saw Raleigh in his garden and stopped to speak with him and ask him for a gift of one of his bottles of balsam. Thomas Harriet, the mathematician, was one of Raleigh's most intimate friends. He visited him frequently in the tower and no doubt aided him in his scientific studies. In 1606, Raleigh's health was again worse, and his physician suggested that he should be removed to a little room which he had had built in the garden adjoining his still house, where he would be warmer and drier than in his damp lodging in the bloody tower. Accordingly, in this garden house he spent part of his imprisonment. His sufferings were much increased by the thought of the position into which his wife and children were brought by his misfortunes. His wife did not always show herself a brave woman in the midst of their trials, and seems even to have gone so far as to blame Raleigh for negligence. Once writing to Cecil, he says, I shall be made more than weary of life by her crying and bewailing. She hath already brought her eldest son in one hand, and her sucking child in another, crying out of her and their destruction, charging me with unnatural negligence, and that having provided for my own life, I am without sense and compassion of theirs. But this was only a passing cloud. On the whole, the husband and wife seemed to have clung closely together, and to have been a source of strength and consolation to one another through all their trouble. Raleigh would not submit to be cut off from all share in the interests of his fellow countrymen. He hardly hoped that he would ever again enjoy power and influence. He knew, he said, writing to Cecil, that the best men are but the spoils of time, and certain images wherewith fortune useth to play, kiss them to-day, and break them to-morrow. Fortune was not likely to kiss him again, but yet a little hope must have dawned upon him when he saw that Prince Henry, James's eldest son, as he ripened into manhood, learnt to appreciate his intellect and court his friendship. Prince Henry was the brightest hope of the nation. Full of the vigor and freshness of youth, he was ready, as Elizabeth had been, to identify himself with the nation, instead of going against it as his father so often did. He was full of sympathy for all that was noble and good, and far from being timid like his father, his brave spirit delighted in military exercises. He was full of enthusiasm for the English seamen who had defied the Spanish power in Elizabeth's reign. Amongst living men, none showed to so great perfection as Raleigh, the qualities which had led men to do deeds of bravery for Elizabeth and for England, and it is easy to understand the admiration which the young Henry felt for him. He was not afraid of openly expressing this admiration at court. No king but his father, he said would keep such a bird in a cage. Henry took a special interest in all that had to do with the navy and with shipbuilding. He would go down and himself watch the building of the ships, and take a personal interest in the shipwrights. He asked Raleigh to give him his advice about a ship which he meant to build, and an interesting letter from Raleigh to the prince exists, in which he tells him all the points to be observed in building a good ship. Prince Henry also asked Raleigh's advice about a still more important matter, the question of his marriage. In the unsettled state of European politics, the different princes were continually trying to strengthen their position by the marriages of their children. France, England, and Spain 
were each anxious to secure one another's friendship by marriage treaties, and engaged in endless negotiations for this purpose. This was just the sort of thing that James delighted in. To treat as an equal with the great European monarchs made him feel the grandeur of his position. But there were difficulties in the way, both of a marriage with Spain and a marriage with France. The great mass of the English were by no means very friendly to Spain. In 1604, a peace had been concluded with Spain, which on the whole left matters as it had found them. The death of Philip II in 1598 had greatly altered the attitude and policy of Spain. Philip II had labored to obtain supremacy in European affairs that with him the Catholic faith might triumph. With this view, he indulged in schemes which kept Europe in constant anxiety, for none felt themselves safe from his aggressions. His death threw all the power in the state into the hands of a man quite unable to carry on his vast schemes. Philip II's son, Philip III, who succeeded him, was of a gentle, timid nature, equally free from either vices or virtues without particular tastes, without strong passions, with no interest but in religion. He could not be roused even to take an interest in his own marriage, and when his father put before him the portraits of three princesses, one of whom he might choose for his bride, he declined to choose for himself, and only said that his father's will was his taste. A man of this kind was sure to be ruled by someone, and Philip III fell entirely under the influence of the Count of Lerma, a courtier whom his father had appointed to attend upon his person. His first order on his accession was that Lerma's signature should be as valid as his own. Everything was left in the hands of Lerma, who watched jealously and anxiously lest anyone else should step between him and the king. He allowed only persons whom he knew to be entirely devoted to him to approach Philip III. He forbade even the queen to speak with her husband about state affairs. He filled all the important offices with his creatures and exalted his own family to high positions. Lerma was entirely in favor of peace. He had no warlike tastes, and the finances of the country were so exhausted by long years of war that he saw that peace had become an absolute necessity. But though he tried to economize by making peace, he introduced a most extravagant expenditure at home. He ingratiated himself with the Spanish grandees by restoring the splendor of the court, which Philip II's stern and unbending character had banished. It was under his influence that the luxury and ceremony of the Spanish court reached an exaggerated development and became a model for all other courts on court festivities, and on the magnificence with which he surrounded the king, Lerma spent as much as Philip II had spent before on war, so that no order was introduced into finances, and the real weakness of Spain was unchanged. The people suffered terrible poverty and misery, whilst their rulers reveled in unexampled luxury. End of section 22